Um, it is a it is a good day. I really enjoy um, baptisms. I think they're just um, fantastic. And we were able to set these up originally because someone um, about a month ago emailed me and she said, I'm ready. Like, it's time for me to be baptized. And so we said, well, let's do it. And, and we've had, since we had two this morning, we have three for the second service and, and maybe some more of you as well that might get baptized too. Um, I don't know. Um, as, as a pastor, I get the opportunity to, to do weddings. So I get to officiate weddings, and I get, to, I get to be a part of them. And then one of the things that, that comes along with weddings is premarital counseling. You know, it's the counseling that, that people want before, before weddings, and they kind of want to know, find, find out, like, if they're in spot. And I got to be really, really honest. And I tell everyone that, that I do the premarital counseling with, I really, really, really don't like premarital counseling. I don't like it at all. And here's, here's why, um, for a couple reasons. One is, if you're, if you're engaged, getting ready to be married, um, forgive me, you're not going to hear a single word I say right now because that's how it works. If you're married, you're going to understand exactly what I'm talking about. But every time I sit down with someone that's, that's getting ready to be married, they sit there and they go, I'm like, well, we need to probably talk about what it means to communicate. Oh, we, we communicate so well. We, I mean, we just got it. We got it. We're like, that is, we are awesome. It's like, okay, well, then we should maybe talk about, you know, time spent. And, oh, you know, our time, like, we're just this perfect rhythm, like we are so happy and everything is so awesome. And so what ends up happening is I spend the next hour telling them all the things I hate about marriage to try and get them to understand that what they're getting themselves into is hard. And my wife and I laugh because it's like, I absolutely love marriage. I love being married to her. You guys are like, oh, no, Jen, what's going on? You know, um, no, uh, I really do love being married. I love it, but it's hard. It's not easy. And so here's, here's, the th- here's how this works. I'm going to unplug this so we don't burn the people getting baptized. Um, that's important. <laughs> um, here's, here's how it works. So someone will come in and say, I, lo- I can't wait to get, like, so they're getting ready to marry. I can't wait to be married because I'm so tired of going home at the end of the night. Like, I just want to spend time with her. And then fast forward a little bit into marriage, it's, wow, we're always together, right? Like, <laughs> okay? I can't, I can't wait to get married because it'd finally be nice to just sleep in the same bed. And if you have a bed smaller than a king, you're like, Oh, we're sleeping in the same bed. Like, this is just so hard, right? Like, it, here's the thing. It's, it's not that any of those things, and we have them all. Oh, man, they communicate so well, whatever it may, may be. But, but the things that we are drawn to, like, my favorite one is, I just love that we really balance each other out. Like, we're so balanced. Like, he's a go, 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 and I'm kind of a slow down. And so, we, you know, I slow him down, and he speeds me up. It's like, and that will be two years of fighting in marriage. Enjoy that, because that's where we were. You know, like, <laughs> you appreciate it now, but it really starts to wear on you later on. Um, and and, and that's, the, that's the thing about marriage. But here, here, here's the reason why I bring that up. And, and it, some of you, like, you're not married, you're college students. You're like, I'm not married. This doesn't relate to me. But... but in a way, it does, because here's, here's, here's what I know about marriage, and here's what I know about, about my marriage, is that, that the commitment that I have to Jen will truly shine in adversity. Meaning the most difficult time, when, when my space with Jen is invaded, and I have something that I want of myself, it, that is when the moment of how committed I am to her will start to show. Right? When it gets really, really hard, when it gets difficult, when things kind of feel like there's nothing working, we're not communicating, we're fighting, my commitment to the vows I made before her, my commitment to her will shine at that moment or won't. And so what I'm saying is that when it is most difficult in life, when it is hardest, is usually when you can define, yeah, maybe I, maybe I didn't mean that all the way. 
Maybe I, maybe, no, maybe I do mean that, or, or maybe I'm just struggling to understand what that means. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, to Matthew 8. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are going to come up and pass one out. If you don't own a Bible, you guys can take that. That's our, our gift to you. Um, our, Matthew's just, we're in this amazing section. And, and again, if you look at the Gospels, some of the way that they're laid out is a little bit different order in how they go. And, and so you can kind of work them together and reconcile and say, well, this most likely happened at this point, or this, this kind of happened at this point. I absolutely love Love, love, love that this little paragraph we're in today falls after Jesus doing three ridiculously amazing miracles. I love that because here's what's happening is, is we talked about it last week and we prayed for healing is that God, God is a God of healing and he wants to heal you from your physical and your spiritual and your mental and your relational and your emotional, um, the pains. But ultimately his desire is to free you from the burden of sin. It's to free you from sin. And so God... God is about that. God, God cares about that, and that's his desire. But here's the thing. What happened is God started doing some amazing things through Jesus where he healed some people, and they were seeing healings like a, a man full of leprosy comes boldly and stands before Jesus, kneels before Jesus, and Jesus touches him, and he's healed. He's freed from leprosy. And so I can't, I mean, I can't imagine if you were sitting there, if you were in that moment, you'd look at that and go, whoa, this guy's powerful. And I love that because what happens is the crowd, it says that Jesus comes down off the mountain and the crowd begins to follow him. And we see this, we see this over and over and over again with, in scriptures that Jesus isn't really concerned about the crowd. In fact, Jesus isn't about making the, the, his message nice enough that many, many people will follow him. In fact, he's, he's just, he's not concerned about the crowd. And so the section we're in is, is Matthew 8, 18. It's just after he'd done all these incredible miracles. And so turn with me and read there. 18, verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is probably the only person that could get away with saying something like that. Seems so harsh, right? Like, Jesus, what are you doing? You're telling them, like, leave the dead to bury their own dead. There's a few things going on in this text that are really, really important to know. First off, um, everything that you just heard is a statement. Is a, is a, um, it's a, uh, a common figure of speech in what's happening. So the first thing is, is a scribe coming to Jesus and declaring teacher. That's important because here's the thing. He was a teacher. Scribes were experts in the law. They, had, they were the experts in, in trans, and retranslating and rewriting the, the Old Testament scriptures over and over and over again and teaching them. And so he was a teacher. For him to claim Jesus as teacher was a really, really big deal because that could have ostracized him among the other, other scribes. And so the, then on one hand, you're like, wow, good job, scribe, like, way to go. Like, you, you want to follow Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say to him, no, you don't. He doesn't say, no, I'm not going to follow you. No, you can't follow me. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything. In fact, he just goes on and talks about two very, in, in their day, very simple animals, foxes and birds. They knew that they would come. And in fact, they, they would sacrifice many birds for, for, for their ceremonies and everything like that. But foxes were animals that had holes to sleep in. And he said, even a bird, as tired as it gets flying around, it still has a nest to lay its head. And then he says, the Son of Man, 
which was Jesus' favorite term for himself. It's used 81 times in all four Gospels. And it literally declares, in the name itself, it declares the glory that we see of Daniel 7.13 and the Messiahship of Psalm 8.4. So he's literally saying, I am the gloryful God, the Messiah of all, when he calls himself the Son of Man. And he says the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. It's not like he didn't, didn't have places to stay. Like we know that he stays at Peter's mother-in-law's house. We know that he has disciples that he stays with. So it's not like he's, he's homeless and has no way to go, but he doesn't own any home. He doesn't have a place to call home. And so he's, he says, I don't have the, just the basic luxuries of life. I don't have the basic luxuries of just laying my head down on my pillow at night in my house. It's my house. And the scribe, what's interesting about the scribe is that we don't hear about him again after this. We don't see like, and the scribe followed him and was excited about not having a place to lay his head down. And maybe later on he came, but we hear nothing of this man later on. We don't hear that this is the scribe. There's no, no correlation in any of the Gospels that tie this man back. So realistically what happened is the guy liked his pillow too much. Realistically what happened is he had the excitement. Now hear me on this. A lot of you have done this at youth camps later on, in the, early on in the past. You've done this. I will follow you, Jesus, because you're emotionally awesome and I love you right now. But then when you realize like you don't have a place for your head that night, or life gets a little bit more difficult. You go, ooh, I gotta follow you. I gotta follow you there. And so the simple life luxuries in this spot. And I think it's so interesting that that's what Jesus said. Jesus doesn't. This is one of the easier responses to someone that says they want to follow him. We don't know the scribes' heart. We know that Jesus does. We we see that happen time and time again. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what everyone's hearts are saying. But we don't know the motivation. It's not like he came in and said something harsh. In fact, he said a really beautiful thing. He said, teacher, I will follow you. It's a big declaration. But apparently Jesus knew that his heart was different. And so Jesus didn't even raise the bar that high. And when I say raise the bar that high, later on, we see it in, the, in John 6, he tells people that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood to follow him. So he, he kind of makes it pretty difficult, the standard. This was just, hey, I don't have a place to put my head. And the scribe goes, ah, no, that's, that's not worth it. And he runs. He goes away. Doesn't follow Jesus. And the second person is, is a disciple. Now, it's interesting that they use the term disciple. Matthew does this a few times. But we see time and time again in all of the Gospels that disciples that leave Jesus. So, so we have to be careful in, in context when we're looking at a disciple and what they do and don't do because some disciples are, are people that have followed him for a while. They, they were like, yep, he's awesome. I'm going to be his disciple. But then we see them leave. Like when um, Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, over 80 of his disciples, gone. Right? And so, so this wasn't a disciple. This wasn't one of the 12, but this was someone who had been following Jesus a little bit, for a little bit of a while to be at least defined as one of his followers. And so he says to him, I mean, it seems like a really common, nice thing. I mean, what's wrong with him saying, like, Jesus, I want to just go bury my dad real quick. Like, let me bury my dad first, and, and then let's go. And what seems like, a, a, for us, a, a really realistic request is actually, um, it's a figure of speech. It's, it's, a, it's an Eastern figure of speech that actually means the term procrastination. So a couple things. Jesus, Jews didn't embalm, so they usually dug the grave the day of the death. They usually buried the day of. And secondly, um, 
in the Jewish tradition, the rule was for inheritance, for me to receive my inheritance, I have to be at home taking care of my dad and my family and taking care of all of his business and what he does for livelihood so that when he dies, I then bury him, I then get those places, and then I get my inheritance. So this term, let me go bury my father, could have, this father could have been in perfectly good health. He had nothing wrong with him. He just, I just need to first, I need to go bury my father, and then we'll go. And the reason why he's asking that isn't because his dad is actually dead. He didn't say that. It actually just says, I'm, I'm going to bury my, bury my father. That term literally meant, I need to see through my father's inheritance. I need to be around. And so he could have been dying. He could have been in a bad shape. But Jews also had a tradition of 30 days of mourning after death. And so, so basically, this disciple is saying, if my father passes today, it's going to be at least another 30 days before I can ever follow you. And essentially what he's saying is, Jesus, Jesus, let me first do this so I can get this inheritance, so I can have what's, what's mine of this world, and then I'll move forward. And so Jesus' statement is, let the buried, buried dirt the bet, bleh, let the bet, he says it way more eloquently than I do. <clears throat> let the dead bury the dead is essentially another figure of speech that essentially means let the world deal with the world's needs. You, you are part of my kingdom. And so Jesus, this disciple, comes to him and says, I'm going to follow you, but first, I, I first need to do this. And he's saying, oh, forget it. You're about the kingdom. It's, it's me first. Nothing comes before me. Nothing's first. Now, true of this is our lives. I started thinking of first in my own life, so maybe first in your life. Jesus, I will follow you wholeheartedly when I'm done with school. Man, Jesus, I'll follow you when the kids get to this stage. You'll, you'll have my attention financially once we have these things in place. Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you. My, our relationship will really be centered on you once we're married, so then it's no longer sexually immoral. And this, is, this is us. We're good at this. I'll follow you when. And Jesus, in his, I think in his graciousness, doesn't say anything other than knock it off. Follow me first. The world will deal with the world like you're of my kingdom today. So be a follower of me. See, the interesting thing is both these people that came to Jesus had contingencies. Both these people came to Jesus with this, this I will follow you when it's convenient. I will follow you once I get this inheritance and I'm in place. I will follow you as long as it's easy. As long as there's no hardship. I talked about premarital counseling. Meeting with a couple after marriage is, is always quite like liberating. I'm not saying in my own, maybe in my own pride at times, I'm like, I told you so, but not like, that's not, I try, I try not to do that, but I'm not perfect. Confess before you guys. Um, but I hear, I hear questions like, did I pick the right one? I had a friend tell me that this last week. Did I marry the right person? And they start doubting everything when it gets hard. I mean everything when it gets hard. And what Jesus is doing is essentially saying, look, I think the church has done a really poor job. I don't even know why we've done it. We have no excuse for it. We've made the gospel, the story of Jesus and what he does for us, all about us and all about our happiness and all about warm, fluffy bunnies and what makes us feel good about ourselves. When Jesus never said that, never 
Jesus, Jesus never, ever once said, this is going to be so easy. He says, my, my yoke is, is light. But what you're about to embark on is, is going to be really, really, really hard. And it doesn't mean, well, then, no, oh, just give up and don't follow. Although some did. They just gave up and ran from him. They walked the other way. In fact, I think what Jesus is saying is essentially he's pressed into people and it's clear to say, look, it's me. Me first, everything else comes after that. Your marriage, your kids, your job, your school, your career, your finances, absolutely everything comes after that. Everything. And I think you and I, the problem is that we think, oh, but he wants me to love my wife, which he does. But the instant my wife elevates his place, I've made her an idol and my God. He wants me to love my kids. He does. But using your kids as an excuse to not follow or surrender your life to him is is just wrong. Jesus is saying, look, it's me first, me everything. He He pulls everything back. When he says, let the dead bury their own, he's saying, you're about my kingdom work now. Not some distant future, not when you graduate or when you have a little bit more time, when your job slows down or when softball ends. Like, no, you are a, you're about my kingdom now. Now, you're about my kingdom. In fact, in, in Luke, we, we hear a text I think is, is um, a little bit harder to hear than the one that we just heard. Like, it's, I, can settle with, I can settle with the idea of I don't have a place to put my head at night when it comes to following Jesus. But he, he raises the bar a little bit more when, again, the crowds were around him. Luke 14, 25 through 33. The crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and, and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, die to yourself, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone who, any one of you who does not renounce all that he is cannot be my disciple. Jesus doesn't want me to hate my mom or dad, but he's saying everything and our comparison to our love with him is nothing. He's saying, count the cost. You want to follow Jesus? You want to follow me? Well, then you have to die to yourself. Take up the cross meant that. That didn't mean anything else. It didn't mean put a cross on a necklace. It literally meant you are going to be crucified to yourself and now mine. You're paid for. You're bought for a price. And therefore, when it gets hard, you don't run away. You sit and you recognize that God is present in hardship. See, Jesus is saying, look, you're going to know 
When you said, whether you were 12 or 13 or a year ago or six months ago, whenever it was, I will follow you, you know how you're going to see that come to fruition is when it gets hard. When adversity sets in place, do you just go, "Mm, this is too hard, I'm out. I'm out. You know what's interesting at weddings? I've never once seen some person up there exchange vows and go, I promise to love you as long as it's not difficult, as long as it fits within my selfishness, as long as... You don't hear anyone ever say that. No one ever stands up and says that. No one ever stands at the altar and says, I, I just can't wait to divorce you. If they do, there's something really wrong with them, right? Like that's, but it happens. Divorce happens and, and people begin to hate and they give up on marriage and they give up on those vows because... Why? Because Jesus is saying they didn't count the cost. He's saying they didn't really understand what they were getting themselves into. He's saying, you've missed it. You got some promise of life being easy, and it's not easy. And look, we, we did prayer for healing last week, and it wrecked me. Wrecked me because so much really, really heavy stuff was shared. Heavy stuff in marriages, heavy stuff in and physicalness, and just heavy, heavy, heavy things in place. And so I understand that some of you are in a really, 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 really hard and difficult spot. And that doesn't seem fun. And right now it's hard for you to see out. And all you can do is see yourself and what's going in here. The wrong question to ask at that time is, God, are you even real? Do you even care about me? Because... That's emotionally charged. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to wonder. Like, it's okay to do that, but, but, but that's the wrong question. Jesus never says, I'm going to take you and give you the best life and make everything easy. He says, no, no, no. I've created you for good works. I have a purpose for your life, but you know what your purpose is? Your purpose is to bring glory to me. We have story after story in the Bible that talk about this. Joseph was in prison for 15 years wrongfully. And you know what God, the Bible says right in there when he's talking about? And the Lord was with him. I want to be like, no, he wasn't. If he was with him, he wouldn't be in prison. We've been sold. Like you, some of you right now, you're like, man, I've been bait and switched. Someone told me this following Jesus would be easy, and now I'm hearing this hard stuff. Wait, wait a second. I don't know if I signed up for that. How motivated are you to follow Jesus when it's hard? What's holding you back? What are you afraid of? What are you, what are you hiding from? When the scripture invades your life and it says, this is what's expected to you of you as a follower of Jesus, what, are, what is causing you to run from it? See, I would say that your commitment to Jesus, to following Jesus, is confirmed in our ability to follow him even in adversity, even when it's difficult. This isn't, I'm not saying that you're not going to have doubts. I have doubts. I'm not going to say you're not going to have a hard time or you're not going to be difficult or you're not going to want to give up. Like, that happens. We're still, we're still in these, these broken vessels as God is pe- piecing us back together into being more and more like his son, Jesus. But my question for you is, do you just jump ship? As Jesus said, you say, I will follow you, Jesus, when? When I'm done with high school, I'll really, really invest in college. Let me just tell you, like, that's that same promise of once we're married, everything's going to be easier. It doesn't work that way. And here's what's, here's what's 
silly to me and myself and why I get in these moments of self-pity. Like, man, what's going on? Life's hard. What's going on? Jesus, you know, never promised that life would be easy. And here's, here's the other promise. that he, he, he never once, never once said that he would forsake us and leave us. But you know what the Bible does say about us? It says that if you are a child of God, if you are adopted into his household, if you are his son or daughter, then you are an alien to this world. You do not fit in in this world. You are a square peg, round hole. So it shouldn't shock us when the brokenness and the mess of this world spills on us. It shouldn't shock us when friends are wailing their life and their marriage. It shouldn't shock us when, when, when physicalness will not heal and it's just destroying the body. This world is a mess. We have the narrative that tells us why it's a mess and what God's doing to redeem it. And he doesn't say, I'm going to save you so that you can be happy and so you can have this perfect life. You can have your 3.2 kids and your white picket fence and no problems and the perfect job and, and all these things working out absolutely perfect. No, he says, I'm going to save you so that you can do my kingdom work today in the mess today. That means that it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult in fact, you know what it means? It means that daily you're going to have to die to yourself. Daily you're going to have to die to yourself. Not once when I was 12 years old. Not once when, you know, I was raised in the church and so it just happened. So I, I love baptism. This is why I love baptism. We baptized someone last service that, that literally got up and just basically said, I'm done running. I was raised in the church and I've never really believed it. I'm done running from the church. I'm done. I'm done running from God. I'm done running from it all. I'm finally ready to surrender. And this is a guy that said that in the midst of some really, 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 really hard stuff that came to surface last week in our healing. Every week someone gets baptized. Every time we do this, someone gets baptized and they just claim this like it meant something, but now I understand and obedience what he's calling me to. And that's what this is about. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to call you to obedience. I'm going to call you to a life that's lived for my purposes and my will, and there's going to be times where you're not going to like it. You're going to go, that's, that doesn't make sense. I love in, the, in, the, in John when, when Jesus tells them that you have to eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's a really hard truth. That even his 12 disciples like, Jesus, this is a hard truth. That's a really hard thing. You know what Jesus asked? Well, are you going to leave me too? And I love Peter's response. Where else would we go? What else is there? You're, you're, the, you're, you're the God, the Savior, the, the one that brings eternal life. What else is there worth living for? And that's, I think, maybe the question that God's getting to all of us, whether it's, I will follow you when it's easy or I will follow you when I take care of these things, is, is Jesus enough to follow right now in your life? Not when, not if he takes care of these things, not if this sets in motion. Is he enough? Is he enough? I think that's the question in this. Again, it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. In fact, we've already talked about this, but coming to Jesus is on his terms and not yours. You come on his terms. The person that truly comes to Christ comes in humility, meekness, a needy beggar, in spirit who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who cries for mercy, and is willing to be hated, reviled, and persecuted for the sake of the Lord. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. We come to him realizing we got nothing. 
to bring to this table. So why hold on to some stuff? Why want an inheritance and then follow? Why, why wait until these worldly circumstances get in place so that you can live a part of the spiritual kingdom that you were called to be a part of the day you surrendered your life to him? So in just a second, we're going to do baptisms, which I think lie up perfectly with this. Lay up perfectly with this. And here's, here's why I'm going to bring this up is because this happened in the first service and we have someone that's getting baptized in the second service that made this confession in the first service is that a lot of you have been running from baptism. You've been running from it because you're afraid that you won't fall imperfect. You're afraid that it means something more than it really does. You're afraid, you're afraid that you just, you can't do it. And here's, here's the thing. What I love, my friend Debbie said, she said the first litmus test to obedience to Christ is baptism. She said, that's it. Like, this is the first time. Like, like you want to see if you really are going to follow Jesus? When he says, be baptized, you, get, you obey and be baptized. And here's the thing. Some of you aren't doing that. You're running from it. You're hiding because you're like, I, I don't know. I'm just not sure. I'm in place. Maybe it's because you're like, I haven't really counted the cost. Well, great. Count the cost. Spend some time figuring out how much this house is going to cost to build. Spend some time looking at what Jesus, just look at the four gospels and look at what Jesus asks of those who follow him count the cost. But some of you, there's no excuse except for disobedience. Some of you, you need to come up and get wet clothes because you didn't come prepared because the Spirit of God says, I'm done. he's, He's pushing on you saying, you're done running for me. Surrender. Surrender it all. Don't hold anything back. And that's, that's what needs to happen. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for, um, your word. Thank you for a hard truth. Lord, I know in, in a text like this where it says follow you and it's not easy, it'd be really, really um, simple for every one of us in the room to go, this is just ridiculous, it's too hard and give up. God, I pray that you would just push into us in that spot. God, for those that are doubting, would you just remind them that, that no one can be snatched out of your kingdom? God, that you, are, um, you, you guard that gate and you hold firmly in that. God, for those that maybe are just spending, spending time holding back, going, I will follow when, I will follow when, God, would you remove all those excuses from their lives? Would you rip them from them? So they're left with the question of, are you enough? Father, for those in the room that, that have, have been following you faithfully and have, love you and, and, and are just excited about your kingdom work but have been running from baptism, how would you remind them that the baptism is something that you command. And God, for those in the room that just don't know you, they hear some of the stuff and like eat flesh and drink blood and wait, this is hard and wait, what's he selling me on? God, would you just wreck their hearts? Would you wreak havoc on them? Would you help them to know that this isn't some religion? These aren't some words. This is a relationship with a God who created them, a God who is capable of redeeming all brokenness in their life and a God who will not give up on them. God, we thank you for for your work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your work in our lives through the sacrifice of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We pray all this in his name. Amen.